Welcome to Owned by Everyone, a series of eight podcasts recorded at an extraordinary two-day conference held at the end of March 2023. Our venue was the seminar room at the Cambridge Conservation Initiative in Cambridge University's David Attenborough Building. Speakers stayed at Pembroke College, which also hosted a conference dinner with our speaker, the leading campaigner for our waters, Fergal Sharkey. The subject which drew us together under a phrase come banner owned by everyone first unfurled in 1985 by Ted Hughes, poet laureate and a great environmental advocate and activist for his beloved rivers and their wild fish, is the wonder, plight and future of chalk streams. What made our discussions extraordinary? Well, those who spoke and the timing of what they said. Ninety women and men met after nearly three years of planning to bring an unprecedented range of experience, expertise and passion to a subject more and more of the public now know is as urgent as the chalk streams themselves are valuable. We aimed in the talks we gave and the discussion that followed for a clarity to match chalk stream water flowing at its best. So we wanted to share them with a much larger audience than our venue could accommodate. With everyone, in fact. With children of all ages. That is, anyone who can feel that wonder. With policymakers and those responsible for making decisions about our use and abuse of the hugely undervalued but life-giving element of water in each of our homes and in the Mother of Parliaments. We hope you find these talks refreshing, stimulating, enraging by turns, and ultimately that you want to act on what you hear. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the next session. I was given a masterclass in chairing by, uh, by, by Chris Smith, and I'm not going to be able to match that. Uh, and my style is probably a little bit, a little bit different. Um, this session is now getting back to the key, the key focus of my, my day job, which is wild, wild, protecting wild fish and their habitats. And we've got three inspiring speakers who are going to address different facets of the fundamental issue. And the fundamental issue that I have and the ambition I have for my organisation is that I look at some of the we look at some of the conservation organisations in this building, British Trust for Ornithology, BirdLife International, RSPB. These organisations, okay, they're dealing with birds. They are critical, a critical part of our, our um, biodiversity. But sadly, the fish interests in this building are sadly depleted in comparison. That's something I find unacceptable. And the challenge that I've set myself with Wild Fish, we changed our name. We didn't change our name lightly. We changed our name because we want to give fish a much greater voice across a much greater audience. It's absolutely vital. And the one thought that I'm, as a chairman, I can always plant one of two things. I can say what I want. You can't stop me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a couple of points. 
The first point is, interestingly, someone talked about cost. I don't think we can afford not to change the way that we abstract. And interestingly and fortuitously, it was not a reason for having the conference in Cambridge, but it could have been a brilliant reason for doing it. Cambridge Water charges less for water, for your water, than any other um, water company in the country. The amazing thing is you pay three quid for a, for a latte in Cambridge. You pay nearly three pounds a day per head for your energy, um, assuming you use both gas and electricity, et cetera, et cetera. You pay a pound a day for a mobile phone. What do you think you pay a day for, for water and sewage combined? The whole lot. What do you pay? Any guesses? You, you know the answer. You can't. Okay, the answer is 50p. But who says we can't afford to, to make some radical change? I just don't buy it. Now, getting back to the, the, the point in hand, wild fish and, and, their, and, and their habitats. We need to give fish a much more powerful voice in the whole conservation process. And the three speakers here, in their different ways, are doing, doing, doing their utmost to achieve that. And in terms of metrics, I come from a fund management background, not a very successful one, otherwise I probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> but, um, our organisation has got an annual income of £800,000 a year. The RSPB has an annual income of about £140 million a year. We need to change that discrepancy. And that is, if you like, my ambition, dream, you might say. But I'm pretty determined, and we are going to make some progress. I'm now going to hand over to Tom, Tom Worthington, a, a scientist, a freshwater ecologist, working on fish migration. And an aspect of science that is so vital that it's under-resourced. But anyway, here we go. Tom. Well, good morning, and thank you to the organisers for inviting me to speak today. I'm going to kind of pull this back and talk about something at a completely different scale. So this is looking at developing a framework for conserving fishes at a global level. And hopefully you'll see that if we can build this programme into existence, we'll be able to think about conserving chalk streams and the rivers of the UK. I just want to highlight this is a collaborative effort. So thank you to all my co-authors, including Catherine, who's here today. Uh, and this work was funded by the building, the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. And the aim is to get the different partner organisations to work together on a common project. Um, and as has been highlighted, freshwater research is kind of less in the building than, say, bird conservation or, or terrestrial conservation. So this is a partnership between IUCN, uh, UNEP WCMC in the University of Cambridge here in Cambridge, World Fish Migration Foundation in the Netherlands and WWF and the Nature Conservancy. Um, of the 18,000 uh, species of freshwater fish described to date, um, the majority undertake some form of between habitat movements as part of their life history. Um, of these, about a thousand can be said to be truly migratory, and as such, their survival is based on completing those migrations. Um, and as well as just being an interesting component of biodiversity, they have a critical role in ecosystem functioning. So moving nutrients from the ocean into freshwater and terrestrial realms and vice versa. But something we sort of started to touch on, they also have an important value to humans in terms of their ecosystem services. They provide dietary protein, income from both commercial and recreational fisheries, and they're also a symbolic and cultural importance to numerous communities. 
So conservation of these species is not only an ecological necessity, but a socioeconomic one as well. However, the picture of kind of unimpacted rivers as shown here in many parts of the world is kind of very limited. In-stream infrastructure development has reduced the extent of many free-flowing rivers. So this is a really interesting piece of work by uh, Grill et al in uh, 2019, who mapped the extent of free-flowing rivers. And what they found was, um, you know, about 50% of the reaches in their database were impacted in some way. So, you know, red is not great, red is terrible, green is, is better. Uh, and in terms of the remaining long sections, you can see we're kind of just finding them up in the northern Eurasia and through into North America, parts of the Amazon River Basin and the Congo have been un unimpacted. What we kind of see, and I think this is a problem with this analysis, is that like Europe and the UK actually look relatively okay. The driver behind that is this is capturing big barriers. And in the UK, a lot of our barriers are much smaller than this. So some work by uh, Belletti just kind of a couple of years ago tried to estimate how many barriers there were across Europe as a whole. And they highlighted it's probably even worse than we, we see in many areas. Based on database analysis and field-based estimates, they estimate there is about 1.2 million in-stream barriers across these 36 different countries. And that's an average of about two barriers every three kilometers. About 70% of those are less than two meters in height, so are generally overlooked in these kind of big scale analysis. So we are probably one of the frag most fragmented parts of the world in terms of our river ecosystems. And that's led to the loss of many of our freshwater um, species. It has driven the extinction of one UK species, the burbot, which is uh, our only uh, freshwater cod. And I would recommend if anyone has time to go and have a look at the museum downstairs, where the last remaining burbot ever caught in the UK is in a jar there. And it's the best exhibit in there, it's better than the elephant. <laughs> <laughs> This fragmentation and flow alteration has degraded the ecological integrity of many of the world's rivers, and migratory freshwater fish are particularly impacted by this. So the most complete assessment of fish populations, I mean, the graph doesn't look good to start with, um, reveal on average a 76% reduction in the abundance of about 1,500 populations species. And in Europe, we're looking at a 93% decline, uh, Latin America and Caribbean. And one of the things we talked about when we talked about the IUCN red list is that we're actually very data poor outside the temperate uh, North America and Europe. So areas of Africa and Asia, we're really struggling to actually capture these trends because we just don't have the data. However, despite the myriad of threats that migratory freshwater fishes are faced, they are at the moment generally overlooked in global policy me mechanisms highlighting some of the, the points that the chairman raised at the beginning. You are listed on the Convention of Migratory Species, which tries to encourage countries to cooperate on conserving those species and their habitats. To address this, we uh, last year um, proposed the development of this global swim waste program, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Uh, our main goal was to start the discussion around swimways uh, and provide a discussion on the range of biological, economic and social metrics which would drive their identification. We define a swimway as the rivers and their associated ecosystems that support the entire migration route. So that's the associated floodplains, 
the whole, but also the marine phase as well. And that's looking at both biologically, but also socioeconomically important freshwater fishes. Taking it back to the birds for a minute, this work was based on the concept developed for migratory birds in terms of their flyways initiative. Um, this piece of research and this identification of flyways led was there to facilitate cooperation between signatory nations and reduce the amount of instruments required to enact conservation measures. And recognition of these flyways led to the stimulus of the Convention of Wetlands of International Importance in 1971, or the, or the Ramsar Convention. And what we hope is if we can build this program for swimways and for migratory fish, we can do something analogous, protecting and restoring important routes for, for migratory species. And this has a benefit not just for fish, but for all the life that is found within rivers, but also species that use rivers as part of their life history. So we do capture the bird um, conservationists as well. Fundamental to identifying the global swimways is knowledge of migratory freshwater fishes and their migration pathways. And this is based um, largely on the IUCN Red List database uh, that Catherine talked about in, in a minute ago. Ideally, data would be globally comprehensive uh, and complete set of metrics. But as we know, we're not in an ideal world and knowledge of freshwater fishes is much less um, than many of the bird and mammal species. And it's often biased towards Europe and North America. Our analysis, what we did was using those areas where we could identify a full set of metrics for uh, freshwater migratory fishes. So we looked at three things, species richness, threatened spe status, and also endemism. To give you an idea of how we, we worked on it, we used data from the red list of spe uh, species distribution and selected about 900 species for which there was information that they were known to be migratory. We then took out any that were extinct or non-native, reducing it to about 650 species in total, where we did this analysis. I'm going to give you an example um, of how we did this. So this is for two species <laughs> in Italy, the three-spied stickleback and the Atlantic sturgeon. And we essentially took their range maps uh, and cut the river sections into where the, those species were found. So we tried to identify uh, which rivers those species were in. We, for computational reasons, reduce that to the biggest rivers, so anything with a discharge of over 10 meters cubed per second. And each little color here represents an individual reach within the database. And they're about, on average, about four to five kilometers in length. What we do then is take every species distribution across our 600 species and overlay where the position was by how many. Um, migratory fish the way in each reach within our global database. Um, we also then analyzed the subsection that were threatened based on the IUCN red list criteria. So we tried to identify those who were critically endangered, endangered or vulnerable. And then finally, we looked at endemism. Uh, those, those species such as this uh, Lake Malawi uh, salmon, which are only <laughs> one single base. So this is endemic to this part of, uh, of Lake Malawi. So to give you uh, some kind of high level uh, uh, statistics um, within our data space, potential global swimways, and with, this is just the starting point, nothing has been finalized. We identified multiple river segments that supported high species richness of migratory uh, freshwater fishes. So, so for example, these rivers in West Central Africa have up to about 60 species of migratory fishes. So just a few more than we get here in the UK. Um, 
Um, but there are also areas where there's a high proportion of them are threatened. Um, and that's often due to uh, pollution from agriculture, mining and industrial operations that create chemical barriers to stop upstream movements. The other area with high species richness was in Southeast Asia. Um, and not only could this be considered as an important area just on its biodiversity as a whole, it's incredibly important as an inland fishery. It's thought that the Mekong alone uh, supports about 15% of the global inland fisheries catch, supporting livelihoods and providing a key source of animal protein for many communities. There's a threat to these rivers that they're being dammed at an unsustainable rate, often across international borders. And that's why cooperation across partners in different areas to look at the whole migration routes is so important, as was done for the, the Flyways Initiative. You can't just look at one place in isolation. Of the 665 species, about oh, just over 100 were identified as threatened, with those rivers in the Black, draining into the Black and Caspian Sea being those ones that were found to have the highest number of threatened species. The Volga River alone contained 10 migratory threatened species. And a lot of this is driven by the sturgeons. That area of the Ponto Caspian is known as a hotspot for those species which have undergone large declines. It's estimated they've lost about 90% of their population from the 14 species which we have data for. Um, and that's really driving this loss in migratory species in that region. And finally, on an endemism, endemism was generally low, which is probably not that surprising given these are migratory species, but we did find some that were moving from kind of lake areas into the surrounding rivers. So the areas where we had highest endemism were in the Rift Valley lakes of Africa, where we had about five to six species of endemics that migrate from the lake up into its rivers as part of its life history. These are really also important in terms of food resources, and there's greater threats to these areas from uh, uns un uh, unsustainable exploitation. As well as the paper that supports this, we created a web viewer where you can look at all the results from the paper. And if anyone's interested, I'll, I'll be happy to share that with you. Uh, you can get information on every individual species, should see its distribution, and add things like the location of dams within this. And as we move forward, we hope to build on more and more information, which I'm going to talk about now. Those biological metrics are really only part of the story. It's I think, you know, easy for a room like this to really find conserving fish for conserving fish. But we will need to have a coherent narrative that gets other people excited and interested in why we're going to look at these species. Um, we want to kind of look at, as we move forward, a mixture of global metrics, such as those big species richness ones, but things that are kind of eas less easily quantified. So to give one example from the biology, um, we're looking at things like unique migratory behaviours. So in Hawaii, for example, there are three species of gobid that actually undertake vertical migrations up a waterfall to get to as part of their reproduction. And that's something I think is so unusual that we should think about conserving. The next stage of the work is to incorporate a wider range of criteria to describe a swimway. Uh, and one of the key things we were thinking about is the economic criteria. It's estimated that migratory species employ about 60 million people in developing countries and are often small scale and subsistence oriented. Um, it provides a source of income and protein to many low income communities. 
In the UK, for example, um, the Rivers Trust found that uh, the England's rivers provide annual e economic benefits of 1.7 billion. Uh, that's majority from coarse fish, but there was still a large component based on migratory fishes. And, we, and what the results showed that is salmon and sea trout anglers on the whole spend more per day and are more uh, on uh, other types of uh, uh, recreational enjoyment. But these are really important resources for certain type, parts of the community and also certain parts of the UK. So the chalk streams being a good example. <coughs> Inland fisheries also provide critical roles in food security in many of the worlds, although the data we have on that is often really, really poor. Um, it's not understood how much protein they provide, but we know in certain rivers, the Mekong, for example, they provide uh, protein for a large proportion of the communities. And something that was touched upon kind of earlier on is migratory fish also provide many less tangible benefits, such as religious and cultural. So for example, the, the indigenous peoples of the North Pacific Rim have managed the salmon resource for millennia, incorporating cultural and spiritual beliefs. Bringing that back to a kind of more UK context, you know, the social history that we need to think about when we think about how we're looking at our swimways, such as coracle fishing <laughs> rivers, which is now limited to just three rivers in, in West Wales, the Towie, the Typhi and the Taff. You know, that's part of our cultural heritage and uh, migratory freshwater fishes are driving that. And this could be something that could be incorporated into this programme. In terms of next steps, um, we... The key thing for us is also to incorporate things like habitat criteria, and this really links back to the chalk streams we're talking about today. Um, as many we've touched upon, there's only around about 200 chalk streams known globally, 85% of which are found in UK, Southern and Eastern England, and they represent a unique habitat that supports an important migratory fish component. In terms of what we're doing in the future, the first thing is to really quantify better the ref and refine the migration route. So we have a good idea of their the species distribution, but we need to understand exactly where fishes move within those rivers and also incorporate the marine zone as well. Um, information is somewhat limited for freshwaters. It's even more limited when we think of marine areas. Um, in order to capture some of this information, we're looking at global engagement to plug some of these data gaps and it's organizations such as the one that's been brought together today will help us to identify, you know, key um, spatial, but also less tangible metrics that could identify global swimways. Um, it's unlikely we can be able to model and map everything as we've done for the species richness, but what we hope is that we'll be able to highlight and tag individual rivers that have unique components. So for example, the rivers in Western Wales supporting coracle fishing. And we've seen around World Fish Migration Day, there's a potential to engage with thousands of people who are actually across the world who are actually interested in this topic. When we think about identifying a swimway, um, it will be underpinned by metrics of different types. So we're trying to think about how we set the threshold. So for example, in terms of species richness, none of the rivers in the UK are going to be highlighted relative to the areas of, you know, uh, West Africa and Southeast Asia. But what we also want to think about is looking at this hierarchically. So you could be identified as a swimway at a global scale, at a regional scale, or even a national scale. And this helps to drive us and determine conservation strategies uh, for those rivers. 
Our overall long-term vision is to uh, create global swimways and have them identified based on a global standard. This is what's been done by the, the key biodiversity areas. And it's something we're hoping to bring in and in addition, embedding global swimways within conservation policy. We've seen from the flyways example that if you can get this um, type of analysis into global policy metrics, we might be able to help for conservation and restoration of the rivers and the species they support. I just want to say to finish very quickly with thanking our funders, which was the Cambridge Conservation Initiative Collaborative Fund and also uh, uh, my co-authors. Thank you very much. Tom, thank you very much indeed. Well, our next speaker will be giving a somewhat different perspective on, on fish. You're not, you're not wearing your wetsuit, yet. It's underneath. Okay. <laughs> Let me hand over to uh, the wildlife photographer, filmer, extraordinaire. Uh, yeah, it's great to be with like, the creme de la creme of river people today. So a lot of faces I recognise and want to say hello to. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. Lovely. Okay. Um, so I quite like fish. <laughs> it's an understatement. I've spent the last... 10 years or so of my career as a wildlife cameraman and photographer, um, jumping in rivers up and down the UK, filming and photographing fish. I'm based in the East Midlands in Nottinghamshire, but I've worked pretty much all over. I think I worked out before today's talk, there's something like 200 odd chalk streams. It's the audience to know if I've got the facts and figures wrong. Um, I've done about half of them. I think I've been in about half of them anyway. So I've done, done a fair few. Need to do the other 100 at some point. Um, so I'm going to go through how I film fish, because I always get asked how I do it, and some of the interesting things that I've come across in, in British rivers. Uh, it's tricky. Every river is different. Um, where I live in Nottinghamshire, there's not that many, well, no chalk streams, but there is uh, quite a few rivers. Uh, this is a tributary of the Trent. Uh, the perch there can be pretty tame. I can tickle perch if I'm on a good day. Um, they're really inquisitive fish. They'll come quite close. I think, to be honest, they're just looking for me to kind of move food on the bottom and they root in. So um, it's not like I've trained these perch, but not until friends. So that would that would be great when it's trained perch. But every river's different. So I can I can go in the Trent one day and, and they're like this. I could go in the Wissy another day and they don't want to know. Every river is completely different um, and requires different methods to uh, to do that. Uh, but stroke streams we're here to talk about today. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to work in, in quite a few chalk streams and we've got this sort of glittered sprinkly view of chalk streams or a lot of people have that view of them and and there are a, a few still like that uh, but certainly from my experience of uh filming above the water with drones and topside and also under the water the the kind of viewpoint that a lot of people have of chalk streams is not necessarily the reality unfortunately and you know there's lots of uh bankside habitat which is really good for for inverts and whatnot but they can be a bit manicured sometimes when they should be a bit a bit like me, a bit scruffy, which we really want. Um, so, um, and I've been fortunate to film in some of these pretty ones. This was with Ash, who's somewhere in the audience somewhere, Ash Smith, uh, when we, we did find a, a lovely kind of chalk stream. I guess this is this is the dream. This is what a lot of people think about with gin clear water and, and beds of ranunculus that you could uh, wrap yourself in. But unfortunately, um, a lot of them are more in line uh, with this. Which is more typical, which is typically kind of algae and sewage fungus, and and this is in the same day. Me and Ash, we did this last year, and we found. I think this is the Albany Brook, which 
Is, did it dry up, Ash? Did you say it dried up last year? It completely dried up. So, I mean, you say you can't get worse, but then there's no water in the building. Uh -huh. So um, it is something that I guess typically I'm drawn to the more beautiful side of chalk dreams, which I guess deep down we all are, but I am trying to show the ugly truth in more of them. It's something I'm keen to kind of explore a little bit more because I guess as a symptom of working for the BBC, which I won't, I won't slag them <laughs> off because there'll be a sniper somewhere in the room, um, but they, they gravitate towards the, the pretty side of things um, quite often. So that's what I've kind of stuck with throughout my career, but I am trying to show a little bit more of the, the grim reality, I suppose you could say. Um, but oh, that was loud. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there are quite a few fish um, in some of these chalk trees. Minnows are one of my favourites. Uh, this is on the River Test around about May time. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of minnows will gather in some of these uh, little side streams. Uh, not quite in the breeding colours there, but they're a really underrated fish. Fantastic colours on them. <laughs> I a lot of time uh, filming those. Um, and you get other species that you might not expect in chalk streams, so mullet, which are a sea fish. Um, these ones have come out of the Sussex Zoos, which if anyone knows the Sussex Zoos near Lewis, it's basically chocolate, it's pretty mucky. And then there's a winterborn that comes into it. So you've got, it looks like something out of the Amazon, but it's in Sussex. And you've got like this kind of mucky river joined by this gin clear river. And you get hundreds and hundreds of mullet um, basically coming in there to clean parasites off themselves. So they've got all these marine fungus, marine parasites, and they treat this as a two-week spa holiday. Lewis is a lovely place. It's an important usage for a chalk stream, which I guess is something that most people wouldn't consider. They think of chalk streams as for spawning and breeding, but fish use chalk streams for a multitude of reasons. And in this case, it's kind of uh, having, a, having a bit of a bath. Um, I have worked locally, so I'm in Nottinghamshire, which isn't too far from Cambridgeshire. So some of you might recognise this, which is the camp, which looks a little bit more like a canal than a, than a chalk stream. But um, I, I was put onto this by Nicola Crockford, who I think someone mentioned earlier, which is, which is an amazing local um, person who does a lot of swimming in rivers. And she mentioned that um, this would be a good spot to go and have a look for a, for a little fish that I was very keen to film, or bitterly, which I'll come on to in a second. Um, we accidentally filmed some of these guys, which is stonk, great big stonking rud, which I'm told the cam has got some huge rud. If anyone you know is into rud, there's some big rud in the uh, in the cam, and this was purely by accident. I thought they were bream at first, but they're like submarines cruising in. So we did get quite a few of those, um, but it was these guys that I was after. And bitterling are a, a small member of the carp family. Um, they're not native, but they don't really cause any major issues. And in the spring, they've got this cacophony of beautiful colours. The males have anyway along there. Um, what interested me was how how they breathe. They've got a very interesting way of uh, of spawning. Not they don't make it simple for themselves. So they need to find a muscle, a living swan muscle, and the female deposits the eggs in the muscle, and then the male fertilizes them, and then he guards his patch of muscles. So I suppose for protection. I mean, it'd be simpler just to do their business outside the muscle. I suppose <laughs> that's why they uh, they do that. And female bitterling were once used as a primitive pregnancy test. You'd put uh, a pregnant woman's pee in with her bitterling, and it's, if it's over positive shows, I don't recommend you do this, <laughs> by the way. Other methods. The over positive would show if she was pregnant. Um, I'm told, don't, yeah, don't do that. Um, and this is on the uh, the Granta, which Rob, somewhere in the audience, will, uh, put me on to. This is Brooke Lamprey on the Granta, so 20 minutes away from here, pretty local. Um, 
I'm, I'm a big fan of the weird fish. Like I think like the salmon and all that are fantastic. I love salmon, don't get me wrong, but I'm always gravitating towards the weird and wonderful stuff. Um, and these are out now. In fact, um, there are some seen yesterday and I'm going to go and have a look for some tomorrow, hopefully. Um, and they're only out for a very short period, Brooklyn prey, maybe a week or two, and then they die after spawning. So you've got to be, get your timing just right to, uh, to get them. And they're incredibly primitive fish. I mean, fish isn't entirely accurate because there's no such thing as a fish, which I won't go into the whole mechanics of that. But basically, lamprey are so primitive, we are more closely related to a salmon than, than a, a lamprey is related to a salmon. So they're really, really ancient order of, uh, of creatures. 300 million years after things been through uh, the planet. So pretty, pretty amazing things. Um, I always get asked what my favourite fish is, so I, I thought I'd kind of cover that now. Uh, which is grayling. I absolutely love grayling. We don't get them particularly that much in Nottinghamshire. Our rivers are a bit too manky for grayling, uh, but not too far away in the Peak District. We do pretty well. And then this is filmed on the Diva um, down in Hampshire. So I've done quite a bit with grayling down in uh, in chalk streams along that way. So real, this is on, yeah, the Diva, big, big, big grayling. Really fascinating fish to uh, see that. And of course, under the water. Um, they're amazing. I think they're absolutely phenomenal. The dorsal fin on them, all these different colours, the reds, the, the, the kingfisher blues, the kind of shine on them. Um, I, I could wax on lyrically about grayling all day, so I'll try not to, uh, to do too much, but they are phenomenal. I do, do love grayling. They're, they're the canary in the coal mine, if you like, for rivers. If, um, if you've got good numbers of grayling, generally that's a good sign. I mean, obviously, if they completely get wiped out, then you know something is not too... Uh, too good but i spent a hell of a lot of time with grayling throughout my career and i was keen to get them on um on telly so as part of my work i come from an angling background i love my fishing but i also come from a wildlife background so it was interesting to hear earlier about how people try and combine those two so um my job's primarily filming wildlife but um i'm always trying to get fish on spring watch or country file or anyone who who will have me uh, to be honest and spring watch like, you need to get more fish on this so pitch this story uh with grayling and they were sort of interested for it. We need to get some footage to, to get them interested. So grayling rooks, a bit like red deer. So you'll get male grayling, again, around about this time of year. Uh, they go much darker and they don't have teeth um, like other fish do. Anglers call them the lady of the stream, but they're, they're quite, um, they're not very ladylike. They, they beat the hell out of each other, basically. So they headbutt, they bite, they body slam, and eventually one of them will kind of be victorious. Um, and he'll get to go and mate with all the... Uh, or the female grayling. So it took four years of going back to the same spot to get them spawning. Eventually, it was finding a spot I thought they were in, trying to get a nice shot, um, waiting for the, the water to be clear. So it's really, really difficult filming fish. It's far more difficult than, uh, than a lot of the other stuff, in, in my opinion, anyway. Um, the male grapes his dorsal fin over the female grayling. She dips into the gravel. They do their business. Um, fantastic. So four years of going back to this spot, I got that, sent that into Springwatch. I was like, I've got it, I've nailed it, I've nailed it. And they said, that's great. Can you get a few more angles, please, of sport? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I had to go back and try and get more. I was like, this is some blue tits and badges that you do every year. Um, don't tell them I said that. All. Um, oh, it was a nice career white last year. Um, and maybe got this. Some of you, has anyone seen this? Before? I mean, I know a few people. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm going to follow me to my brain. That was the pale one. Um, the really boring answer is to why she's doing that is she's trying to get more oxygen. But 
you can make up other, <laughs> other things if you want. And they showed that live, and then the headline in the newspaper the next day uh, was this. <laughs> so I'm trying to get known as a professional cameraman at the time, and then I'm just known as the guy who films fish having sex. Um, but that was great anyway. Um, one of, of my pet peeves is, is barriers to my migration. Um, is, is, there's so many different problems and it's difficult to kind of quantify which one's worse than another. Um, I live on the Trent catchment. We've got nine major weirs all along the Trent. All of them are passable, but not ideal. So we've got salmon that can get up there, but they expend a huge amount of energy trying to do so, um, which makes them vulnerable to you know the plethora of other problems that we have in, in rivers. Um, if it was up to me, I'd have a stick of dynamite on everyone and pull the plunger myself. Like I really can't stand weirs. And I think when we look at all these other problems, mm. there's very complex ways to fix it. Whereas tomorrow you could get rid of a weir and that's going to solve. I mean, that's a very simplistic way. Obviously, I don't know the mechanics of it, but if it was up to me, I'd dynamite a bloody lot of them. Um, so there's, um, this is on Cromwell. This is the first weir on the trend. And this salmon's already fully, this kite bird, this male salmon's already fully coloured. It's already knackered and it's got the first um, weir. This is the fish pass that's meant to be, uh, meant to be working. And, um, you can see the male's just kind of dropping to the bottom. He's already knackered and he's at the first barrier. So it's, um, it is difficult for them, definitely. I do feel for, for a lot of these. So weirs are a, are a huge problem for a, a plethora of, uh, of reasons, of course. Um, so how do I get these shots? I've got, there's no one way of doing it. Every river is different. Every river will require um, a, a different solution. So I like snorkeling and that used to be my favourite method um, until kind of more sewage turned up in it. So I'm not an overly fan of, of having, you know, sanitary towels all over me if I can help it. But I, I used to really enjoy snorkeling uh, in rivers, but I don't do it as much now. I will occasionally, but um, a lot of what I do is remotely. I tend to do a lot of remote, uh, remote camera work. The advantage I find of that is that, well, one, you get a steady shot, but also the fish are behaving very natural because there's no human presence. Some fish get you, of course, but uh, from what I found, fish can be um, a bit more natural when there's no one around. So barbel, for example, they're a close second for me after grayling. I love barbel. The River Trent, if any of your anglers will know, the Trent is like the barbel mecca, basically. There's some fishing pegs, a three-year waiting list on the River Trent. It's very, very popular for these, uh, for these fish. Um, so I'm trying to get barbel spawning. Um, I don't just film fish spawning. I have to do other things, I should say. Um, and it's a case of getting the camera in the right spot and hoping they come by. So big female barbel here, uh, much, much bigger than the males. The thing with barbel is they don't spawn like a salmon. So a salmon will build a red and she'll stay on that red. But barbel kind of have an area maybe 20 metres wide. So I can put a camera in, but there's no guarantee she's going to go in front of that. So... My method is a war of attrition, whereas I might have eight or nine cameras littered around the, uh, the, the area. And then I've got to remember where they all are. <laughs> I'm not to lose any if I can help it. Um, and eventually, again, this took a couple of years to kind of get the shot of them, uh, shot of them spawning. Um, sometimes you miss. So in this case, the barbel spawn behind the camera. You can hear them doing it. And you see the eggs going by. So it's almost like they're mocking me. Uh, well, let's do the fantastic shot. I mean, you do get all the little, it does prove a point that you get all the little fish eating the eggs. And I guess it proves why fish have so many eggs, because as soon as they come out of that fish, 
they're already under attack from little dace and roach and stuff. So out of the you know hundreds of thousands of eggs that female barbel might have, how many of those are actually going to make it to uh, to adulthood? And um, it's actually an interesting point that although I do like filming uh, big fish and anglers are always interested in the big fish, I'm more interested in seeing the little fish, juveniles, because if I film lots of juveniles, you know, something's happening. Whereas if you're, if you're only getting big fish, then you start to worry a little bit about what's, uh, what's happening with recruitment. Um, I did eventually get a spawning barbel. So this big female comes in. Nice look at that grapple. <laughs> And did that. So I was pretty happy with that. And generally speaking, I travel all over the UK for this sort of stuff. Um, and I've got a network of kind of informants, some are here tonight actually, who will let me know that that stuff kicks off. And then this was 10 minutes from where I live. Like my local fishing club went, oh yeah, we've got spawning barbels. I was like, that would have been handy to know uh, years ago. Um, but I'm also starting to film fish from, from the bank as well because. I get a little bit engrossed with the underwater world, but obviously most people, this is how they see fish. So I am trying to do more topside filming because it's more easy for people to connect with um, when they're seeing fish from the bank. So I'm trying to do a little bit more like that. Um, video. Um, so you can get away with murky water with video a little bit. Uh, this is the River Derwent in Derbyshire. And this is about as clear as it gets. This is a good day on the, on the Derbyshire Derwent. But with the fish moving in the background, you, you could, if you want to be romantic, you could say it adds mood and mystery and whatnot. But um, really, you want clear water. For filmmaking, particularly with fish, the clearer the water, the better. So that's what I'm striving to get. And obviously, with, you know, with the UK, it's either chucking it down or in droughts, one or the other generally. So it's trying to make sure that the water's as good as it can be. This is the Lafka, which isn't a chalk stream, but it is a very clear stream in the, um, in the Peak District. Um, I, I have to admit, the, the term that really breaks on me is gin clear. The amount of people go, oh, it's gin clear, and then you turn up and it's like lemonade or, or cloudy lemonade. You know? So uh, I, I've kind of done a voluntary plan if anyone's saying gin clear to me, because there's very few rivers that are gin clear. But the Laugh Kill's one of them. It's a very, uh, very beautiful river. Um, I do scuba dive occasionally. I don't do it as much just because most rivers I can stand up in, so I don't feel the need to dive in. The, there are advantages to doing it, so obviously there are cases where you... You can get some really good stuff and you've got more prolonged periods down there. Uh, but mo more often than not, I don't, um, I don't tend to dive. But I do occasionally do it. Um, this case, we're getting spawning pike. So I mentioned that um, what I do is remote. So that means the camera is stationary. It's just left running. And then I've just got to hope that the fish goes by. There's a little bit more to it, than that, but that's basic gist. So I've had to kind of create these camera rigs. So one of the first ones that I tried out was fish cam. I'm not an artist, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, it was basically I put one of my fishing lures in half and glued it to a camera, and I thought, well, that'll work. <laughs> the fish didn't give a blind bit of notice, to be honest. It made, made me smile anyway, gave me an afternoon off. Um, I, I always get asked as well, like, what camera should I use? To be honest, I just work with what you can afford. Like, if you can get a more expensive camera, fantastic. If you can't, you can get 30 quid GoPro knockoffs from Lidl they'll pick stuff up. So just work with what you can afford. Generally, they're all waterproof as well. Um, and I typically, use, I've got kind of fancy cameras as well, but um, I like these little cameras just because you can get lots of them in the water. And it's amazing how quickly uh, technology moves. So um, I went to university 10, yeah, about 10, 12 years ago now in Falmouth in Cornwall. And that was when the very first GoPro came out. So I managed to get hold of one, went to Bodmin Moor to film sea trout spawning. And uh, got the camera in the water, 
the shot I thought at the time was brilliant, but it's kind of like someone's rubbed Vaseline on the lens. It's his pants, to be honest. And then a couple of years later, you know, the hero caught himself. And he's already back. And this is already an old, an old model. So technology moves incredibly quickly. And it's just a case of, uh, of keeping up with it. You know, for example, Hero 8 now. So things are always getting sharper. They're getting cheaper. They're getting, oh, I'm getting yellow carded. Oh, I'm nearly there, nearly there. Uh, drones are obviously very good, so you can use them for um, spotting things in the river. Like this are all salmon reds, so as well as being a cool toy to have, they're good for, for surveying things. So you can spot the salmon on there. Um, I've done bits with carp on my local uh, car plane. Basically, most of what I do is a camera inside a housing. So the camera itself isn't waterproof, but the housing uh, is waterproof. Um, chalk streams can be home to kind of more, more rare and unusual fish. So spine loach, they'll be in the cam. Uh, they're a species with an eastern distribution. We all know about the plight of eels. Um, obviously, they'll be home to it in a lot of chalk streams where they start off like these little glass eels are transparent. Um, you know, not too distant past, rivers would have looked like this, where uh, thousands and thousands of glass eels covering the river. Where now this is largely restricted to only a handful of rivers. Uh, and I'm glad Tom, before he came on, uh, but the speaker before me mentioned Burbot. I'm a big Burbot believer. Um, I absolutely think they're fantastic. This it wasn't filmed in England, unfortunately, it's filmed in Belgium. Um, but they would have been present in the cabin. I, I definitely want to go and have a look at the one in the jar uh, before I before I go. But this is a species that needs very uh, healthy, clean waterways to survive. So if you've got Burbot, everything else can do well. So I would quite like to see the Burbot make a return. I know there are plans with North Rivers Trust uh, kind of pushing that out. So hopefully... Uh, Hopefully we will get them. Oh, hopefully we'll get them. Um, anyway, that brings me more or less to the end of the talks. Jack, thank you very much indeed for that. You're really inspiring. Give a plug for Jack because he forgot to mention to... it himself. Or if he did, I wasn't listening. Um, Jack had just completed a film called Britain's Hidden Fishes, which is premiering on the 17th of April at Bristol Aquarium, 7pm, I think in the evening. Tickets are available. See Jack. Free. <laughs> it's a well worthwhile project. We we helped um, put some money into it, along with a, a host of other organisations as well. Um, right, our next speaker is Mark Danzo. Mark was introduced, introduced to me through OBE last time round, through a conversation with uh, John Fanshaw. Mark is an illustrator. He's coming at things from a slightly different direction to Jack. It's an equally wonderful and important direction. Hand over to, to Mark to yeah. do the rest. Right. Thank you. I don't know how I'm going to follow Jack anyway, so uh, hopefully it won't be too boring. <laughs> so, um, this is the title Summary's Illustration Form and Functions of Colour. A few old sketches I, I did ages ago in a book. It was all about green fishes of whales for some reason. I'm more well known for my sharks. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone's actually known me or anything else to do with me, it's it's about sharks. Um, I got involved years and years ago uh, doing sharks. This is for the Shark Trust. It's posters. Again, it's going for that thing everybody's been talking about is engagement, getting public interest. This poster was just started as something as a watercolour painting just to start things off. Um, have an idea just to... Um, put out by the shark bust. But it's now, I think it's now in six aquaria as their main display because 
they can't keep big sharks quite rightly so, but they like to show what, show what sharks are. Um, so, from well, a point of view of actually public engagement from sharks, it's been very good advocate for another people that want to um, that's watercolour, and I'll go on to explain why I've sort of hopped from doing watercolour to this, which is a computer actually scanning a pencil drawing and then colour. Um, this was from a set uh, for Mara Lyon. They wanted a nice uh, of the sharks they had. Tend to find to draw people in that they might have sort of like in, you know front views of them rather than lateral views for ID purposes and engagement. This one here is from the infamous Sharks of the World that I worked on years and years and years ago with Collins, and then later on we had our own publishing house called Wild Nature Press, and we republished it for some reason. Collins, even though the book sold really well, decided to actually drop the book. Um, it, it's gone on to be people kind of like the, the shark bible used by everybody. It's, it's a good, it's a good point of view of, of actually trying to get, especially in the especially with sharks. There wasn't really any one point of source for information for sharks. There was a loads of little guides, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but nothing was actually brought in. So it's been a very good uh, book to have for people to actually use and use at least. Nomenclature rise to actually actually get it right. But um, going on to where I should be talking about is is uh, the salmonids. This is a thing I did years and years ago. Again, when you start thinking about it, how old you are, you start to get a bit worried. Um, this was done for a book on the Arctic Complete story. One thing I must say about this, I'm not happy about the illustrations. Um, I followed the, what the author said they wanted and I found further information. And that's what you'll often find. And you'll have to do as a, a good scientific illustrator is to, is to always realise you can always improve your work. There's so much more information. I like the Jack always sends the trends. Hi, I keep looking at somebody's photos and going, oh, no, I've got to go back to that one again. So it's literally, but watercolour, it, it, it doesn't tend to have the best effect of actually changing because you've got to start all over again. So this is the other plate that was actually done for that. But I know some of those colour phases are wrong. So that's why I thought of a show. I have started salmonids years, years ago, but I've always been in, interested in, in salmon and trout. Ever since a child, um, I used to fly fish with my father. Um, Again, pointing back to people getting worried about eating, I don't, I would never eat a fish I ever caught. Um, we played the game, dropped him back in the water, fish barbless, and away he goes. And that's, that's my day. More importantly, it's just being where you are, that, that peaceful moment that you actually have to sit and fish and watch the world go by because you can be sat there doing nothing rather than people wondering what you're doing. You're a man on your own. What are you doing sitting on your own? Have you got a a rod in your hand, they think, well, that's all right then. <laughs> <laughs> you could sit there and do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> fact, I was looking back at previous work. Mm. One thing I did actually do is a three times before the work that um, Nick started me on are, is the crayfish. Again, it's, it's, it's a very much under pressure. 
This is a book for invasive species by Bloomsbury. Um, I, I did a, a lot of the pencil illustrations for that, but the one thing was that to show these other versions that were um, invading it. And they are under a, a lot of pressure from these invasive species. And this was just to draw attention how to tell the species apart. Again, I find illustrations very helpful, especially with pencil illustrations, because if you look at colour, I'll go on to colour with fish, is that they are highly variable. And so if, and we are terrible as a, as, as a species to identify things with colour. If you ask a person what fish it was, the first thing they'll go to is its colour. And, and often this is a very big problem when you start to identify species because you can't always go for colour. So that's why I always start with pencil drawings. It's because you can hone down on, on the features. So, so hence, that's why we just picked out those certain items that people can actually actually compare. So I'll talk about the process, how I create illustrations now. It's a, it's a long old process, not as long as, as going down rivers and doing, but some of these can take anything up to a week to actually do because the research has to be there. So the process from going from like a pencil drawing up to a full color version takes a while to do. And I'm not being blase about it, but it, it, but it does. But it, it, I, it's getting your eye in when you're ever illustrating. I've run a scientific illustration course. And the most important thing is getting your eye in, looking at the species. And the wonderful thing, the biggest fun I have with that is a lot of scientists actually go off um, on my illustration course, and we go down to the local aquarium, the National Marine Aquarium, and, and I get them to draw a fish, just quickly sketching or whatever. And the amount of people, the scientists come back, who are especially in the subject, going, I didn't realise it had that feature. I didn't realise it was there. When you start drawing at things, and I would recommend everybody to do that, when you're, whatever you're working on, drawing, because you really start to see it. The same way as when Jack goes down the water, you really have to look at these things and to understand them. And as soon as you do that, there's some sort of feeling between you. So this is a quick thing how Nick and I worked on. Um, so basically, I normally send out reference photos. If it's left blank, nothing ever happens, nothing comes back. And then I get the good photos. So this is what came back from Nick. And, it, and I must say, these photos blew me away because normally I end up with some really misty stuff. I normally, as again, I work on sharks and rays, you don't get wonderful photos like this of fresh fish, freshly caught, probably put back. You know, that, that's the thing. You don't get that with sharks. You tend to find I have to work from gruesome photos of fishermen that are caught a fish, they've landed it, it's mangled, it's not happy, and then you're trying to create the right image from that. So these are just brilliant. It just means that you have wonderful references to go from, and you have to use as many references as possible. I know people say, well, you're using a photo. I don't use one photograph. The more photos I have, the better, because then you can get an average, because what I'm trying to create is an average, an average perfect fish. So these are, the, these are the sketches, you know, just roughly from that thing. And I, I, I just, you, and this is some of them. They just like literally scattered around the place. And that's a pencil drawing, as you saw. So, I mean, I couldn't 
I don't do scale counts sometimes on species, but some species which state them, I do go reading through all the books to make sure it's all correct, the fin rays, et cetera, et cetera, because there will always be somebody who will catch you out going, oh, that's not right. But those, the way, the way that's done is done in layers, because I'll show you one after, because I didn't have the in-between state of this one available. That's the one I sent Nick, and he said, no, that's not the one I want, but that's a pristine farm. That's, well, yeah. it would be, but a farm, I'm going to do some other ones. I promise okay, you, no, really. Because no, what we were aiming for is, but it's not, and, and it, the, the wild rainbow is not strictly a, a chalk stream fish. It comes from the Derbyshire Y, but I wanted that as well as, because we're working on a wider, wider project, and it just turns out to be just such a wonderfully photogenic and yeah. um, visual it experience. Is. Anyway, sorry. It's okay. Right, so a quick comparison between the two. And I think that's the other thing that illustrations can actually do, rather than actually having fun with those, is, is they're exactly to the same scale, alongside each other. You can actually see the differences that you're looking at. Photos, you get an angle, the light's not right. And I think that's the advantage of, of having uh, illustrations. But that doesn't stop Jack's work. Jack's work is the nice accompaniment to the thing. Because then, then you can see it actually in situ, which I think, you know, the biggest time consumed for me, if I had to do a painting in situ, you're trebling the amount of time it takes me to do something like that. So it's not worth me have Jack's photos to put it in situ and give it a better idea. It's a is a holistic view of that species. So this is the brown trout. <clears throat> and oh, I'll go back again. So this is this is the actual um, colour stage, the, the halfway stage that I send to everybody to just to check it out, just a rough colour. So I know I'm going in the right direction. You know, and this is because it's computer, I can. This layer, this coloured layer, I can quickly alter it. The layer, the spots are on another layer, um, and that's how you do it up. That's how you can change it. It also means at a later date, if Nick wants me to revisit uh, the brown trout and I want to change the colours and I do variations of them, I can do. Rather than the old days, I used to have to repaint it and take hours and hours more time. So this thing, that's that when all works so it, it it is a thing of like I mean I, I spent hours and hours doing it but I'm sorry it's real fun <laughs> <laughs> and and I am very honest with everybody I do work because I'm the majority of people I work for are conservation groups I know how money is tight for them and so we are I try to be as fair as possible with that sort of stuff I, I, you know because this has to be out there if we're going to start to protect these species this can be all used for all sorts of things. And that's why I'm not trying to sell myself, but other illustrators is that it engages the public a lot to see a picture of or something and to understand it. It also means later on, because I do pencil drawings, I can sort of outline them and then you can take them around children and they can color them all in. And so that's what I, my grandchildren do. They color all my pencil drawings in. So they have great fun. So this, this is a farmed one, um, a pristine farm, as you said. You, you can see, you know, how it's overweight, grey, boring, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's like me. <laughs> <laughs> it does look like an old oh, Yes. But again, they're in the wild, <coughs> pristine farms. So, you know, it's, it, it gives an idea of stuff. And I want to do in-between ones and stuff like that. And a real one where 
that's a nicely farmed one. That's just released, but other ones are just horrendous. This was a quick one that I haven't completed. We're, I was running out of time, but this is the next one I want to do is the sea trout. My, one of my favourites because, frustratingly, I used to go fishing as a lad down to Lost Withiel, and there was a sea trout that had its own little bay in the river, and nobody ever caught it. There's nobody. The only time we've ever seen it is when the army used to do manoeuvres, and this boat used to go up with enough wake to blow it up, you know, to, uh, to bring it up to the shore. And then everybody used to try and run down with a net and missed it. And then it was a So nobody could catch it. But the Atlantic salmon, actually comparing that with a rounded thing, they are lovely things. But again, I'd like to do other versions because that is an average. <laughs> I mean, the one for Jack, I didn't realize you were so much into this one. So the great thing. Um, I must say, it was a struggle to do because. Trying to get an average is impossible to do with a thing because, as Jack said, it's got so many colours in there. And I think sometimes with, with photos, you can add too much thing. You're trying to get the basics in there, the, the identification features in there. And you can get carried. I could have put shine on there and whatever. I just wanted to get the basis. But this is why I do other versions of it as well. So it's just... It's, it's hopefully correct. I've, I've checked all scale count, uh, not scale counts on this one. There isn't a proper one that I found, but the fin rays are all correct. But I will go on to one thing about the colour variation just quickly to whiz through. This is the Thornback skate. It's a skate because it has eight cases. Right? <laughs> so that's the main difference um, between a ray and a skate, is skate have eight cases. So basically, this one. Was, I was talking to Vatish Stamen. He doesn't believe it should be called the thornback skate. It could be. It should be called the chameleon skate. Because there's this one, and 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 this one as well. And this is why you can't always go on colour. This is why the only way. And and the old way to tell this one apart used to be because it had a banded tail with Rose Thorner Tate's very thorny tail, until I did some work for uh, the Israeli government, and the Mediterranean species is that one. It doesn't have any real banding on the tail. You can't tell it. So again, you have to go to the thorn counts. So this is why trying to show all the colour variations is helpful, because if you went on a certain illustration or a photo, and you went with that one. The darker ones tend to be in the Scandinavian countries, in seas around there. But I'm still trying to find out people who've actually done the research. But if, if you did it just on that, it, you know, it would be misleading to what you had. And this is for all people from CITES. This is, these are the illustrations I did for uh, of the CITES at Panama, where they had all these species listed because they asked me to do these illustrations. WCS paid for me to do these illustrations to actually basically prove that all those species were so similar that you couldn't pick out one from the other. And if you're if you're protecting a few, the main ones were was the white tip um, and 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 the blue they were trying to work on. But they but they proved it that they couldn't tell these things apart sufficiently enough to actually not group them all together and list them all as one, the hammerheads and the recreant sharks. And again, I was quite proud that my illustrations were used for that. And that is where illustrations, where people say, why are you doing this? 
You know, why are you spending hours doing all this stuff? Because it does actually have a purpose. That um, looking at these things, engaging the public, making people understand. Um, you know, the trouble with sharks is that if we did that with photos, it would be very grotesque. You'll have pickled specimens. And I wonder, there's one, if you look very carefully, which is probably extinct now, which is obsoletus, which is the lost shark. There's only one specimen, it's in a museum. But that's been the problem with a lot of my species I've been illustrating, I've been illustrated dead species or, or dying. So hopefully that will give you an insight of what um, illustrators can do. And, uh, and thank you very much for listening. Well, thank you, everybody. And I hope you can sort of see why some of us are so inspired by wild fish and care so passionately about them and their, their environment. Could the speakers come up to the front? Because I'm sure there will be, so I hope this will play. Um, right. Who would like to ask a question? Young lady in the back. <laughs> a question from Mark. Yeah. Um, do you use Photoshop to do the different layers? Yes, I do. It's it, it's, it's all on Photoshop. It's uh, and I use a Wacom tablet. So, but I don't use any skins or, or, or any special paintbrushes or anything else like that. It's it's as if I was painting, but it just means I can create stuff. I love the Control Z as well. So basically, you know, like the old days, you used to think, ah, oh, that's it, trash. Um, you, you can actually go back and play around with it. So yeah, I do use Photoshop. Okay. Probably quite a basic question. Um, you know the fish spa day? Yeah. Did that just, do they just, did the parasites just die because they're in fresh water instead of salt water? Is that it? It's marine parasites. Yeah, so the marine parasites can't survive in fresh water. Um, they have to be there for like a week or two and then the parasites just die off. At the beginning of March and go within two or three weeks. Yeah. Tom, I'm just wondering whether, is there any value to be had in putting a value on fish itself? Uh, the Bahamas, I think they've done for bonefish, they say that each fish is worth about $5,000 US to their economy. And I've tried to see the equivalent in the UK, and I think the best you get is like an average salmon fisher spends like £750 up in Scotland when they go for a trip. In a world that seems to value nothing, is there anything to, be, to actually sort of put a value, an actual physical value on the fish that are passing through rivers, therefore making people care more about them? Yeah, so the long-term aim is to uh, the different rivers have metrics such as the economic value of recreational fisheries, of commercial fisheries. Um, the, the difficulty beyond, beyond with all this is the data. So it takes a lot of time to record these. And, and you've got to think for some of the, um, so the Mekong, these are all really small subsistence fisheries. So maybe other metrics in terms of nutritional value are more uh, a better way to look at it. So yeah, there's going to be different uh, metrics that be worthwhile in different locations and diff with different species competition. Uh, one of the most horrific presentations at the last uh, Owned by Everyone conference was by a guy who filmed inside salmon farms. And, and the images were absolutely horrific of, of the deformities and disease in there. I just wonder whether you explore deformities in any way and whether there's any value in illustrating disease specimens as opposed to pristine i i, I think illustrating yes It'd be because i think sometimes especially if you see it as, as a sequence or, or, or alongside yeah. others yeah. how they should be i think that's that's the biggest correlation you can see because i think people will be aghast about how some um, are, are distorted and you'll also find that you know the, the stuff i found with sharks there are 
situations where there aren't pollutants in there and, and they're finding some weird distortions. And that sharks are very resilient. But I think that, that's the way, and, and Jack filming it as well. I think, I think people need to be shocked into, into what they're I mean, I know for the Cornish around here, we're, where I went down that way, they're really upset because all, all the rasses are being taken out to actually be put into the in, into salmon farms to, to feed off these bloody lice. And we're losing all, so it's a double whammy that, that, that we're getting. I think people need to have that in front of their faces before they look at a plate of salmon and think, really want to eat. Sometimes I find that we, we've got lots of clips of my other work. I've, this wild fish we're campaigning to stop open net salmon. The actual live videos are sometimes too horrific to look at and actually seeing it. It is part of the plan to get some drawings of these diseased fish that, that are <coughs> living this weird existence of these fishing farms. As you know, we're campaigning passively to get that open net farming to an end, partly for welfare reasons, but mostly for the ghastly impact it has on wild fish and their habitats, including the ras who bizarrely are on a one-way journey. They're picked up, and these rats can live for up to 20 years in the wild. They're slow-growing like a lot of sea fish. They're scooped up off the coast of Cornwall or elsewhere, and they're shoveled into open-net salmon farms. Their job is to eat the off the salmon. And of course, when the salmon get harvested, so do the rats. They're on a one-way journey, and it is, it, it is horrendous. Um, and another fish, lumpfish, are also like that. And just to sort of capture some of these things in video, it's too upsetting at times to watch, I find. Drawings, I thought, would be a good way, a slightly easier way for people to digest their kind of intended the, the consequences of their diet. And yeah, it is part of our, part of our plans. Just a question for all three of you, uh, <laughs> and something that at Wild Fish we constantly struggle with, is that probably everybody in this room finds something iconic like the Atlantic salmon to be charismatic. But outside this room, and kind of what you were talking about, Jack, in terms of like trying to get Springwatch to take your footage, why is there a disconnect when it comes to fish? Bear in mind, if you look at the Atlantic salmon and its crazy journey and what it's capable of, and yet people often switch off. Why, from an artistic sense, but also from a journey sense, like why do you think that is? Why is there that barrier there? And what can we all do in this room, kind of putting our heads together, try and change that? How can we make fish more charismatic to the general public? I think uh, it's outside of London generally, because most people aren't bombed because it's me to jump in rivers. So it's easy to fall in love with a blue tip or, or something you see every day in your garden or your nature reserve or whatnot. But people don't see lampreys in the river, they don't see shoals of minnows, they don't see... Um, the, I, love, I love salmon and trout, but you know the other fifty-three other species that bite a little bit. So I think it is a case of whether it's through art or science or poetry or filming or whatever is bringing some of these fish to the line. Do we need to lobby Springwatch then to stop? <laughs> Don't say that I sent you. <laughs> a kind of observation about um, Mark who inspired me because of his drawing and paintings. I'm thinking about some of the things I've, I read a paper. Six years ago now, I think it is, um, published at University of Exeter on changing behaviours in 20% of freshwater fishes due to about maybe about 200 chemicals going into the water. And so I'm a bit curious, is it Tom? Yeah, about whether some of these things behaviourally being changed. Obviously, I'm sorry, Mark, but you probably can't paint behavioural change. 
Um, but Jack, whether you see any, sorry, wrong behaviour, behaviour pre and post, because that's the thing that you're trying to get across. There's some sharks that behave in weird ways in certain circumstances. So yeah, it's like Jack, whether you've seen it, yeah, maybe over time. Um, I mean, ten years is a short time and a long time, depending who you ask. No, I mean, I, I don't call it an academic. I can't even say the word academic background. So. People who probably watch my footage might, might be able to comment on that. I mean, we, there, there's definite evidence to suggest things like light pollution, noise pollution does change behaviour of migratory fishes, making it difficult for them to navigate past certain barriers. Um, and in some ways, that's also been trying to use to actually steer them around obstructions as well. Um, I think we know less about freshwater fish than we do with a lot of species. Um, and so, you know, more research into freshwater fishes is needed. I think we're maybe a bit behind terrestrial ecology uh, in, in, in what we've studied so far. Um, what about um, the at-sea behaviours of your migratory fish? Are they being GPS tracked? Like, I mean, that's where the, the flyways thing is totally dependent on that tiny technology. Is that being done? Yeah, so the you know the tags are getting smaller, they're getting cheaper, same cameras. Um, we know less about the marine movements than we do about the freshwater movements and we think that that's maybe where the bottleneck is for certain species so it's really a crucial point but all these things need to be connected together in order to understand you know where the species are moving in freshwater but also where they're going in the marine zone but you also get species that are moving just with the impacted by barriers so the trend for example they've shown there's quite large movements of bream up and up downstream are impacted by things like colic sluice and then all those ones in the city. I just asked a question about su sustainability of harvest, actually fish being taken, because we're, we're moving from salmon farming, so that's bad, and I see wild fish being caught and then shipped off to waitrose, etc. But there must be something around the economic and sustainability of actually taking fish out. Have you looked at that? Uh, that's not something we've covered, but um, it, it, I would say that it's, you know, a, a bigger, the, the fish harvesting in terms of migrated fishes is bigger in other areas, the Mekong being one of it, where, I mean, communities are impacted by, you know, dam developments upstream, which are stopping the kind of spawning migrations, which is support like millions of people. Um, and so I think, you know, over-harvesting in the UK, I don't know um, how much of the fisheries is catching weeds. I would expect the majority of it is. Um, but, you know, I think what we're trying to do is find metrics that allow us to sort of quantify individual rivers to say this is important on this factor. When you were talking about the freshwater migration, have you seen the thing, I think it was Holbergate Broad, where there was a drive to try to shut out the bream and the other fish because they've got acoustics of the diurnal changeover, you know, where large fish came into the broad and the smaller fish went out at night and then the following morning things would change over and they were trying to get the thing to actually remove the fish from the broad because they were worried about the eutrophication but hadn't taken into consideration the importance of that that broad on the wider yar catchment. Yeah, I mean, I think on the whole, the connectivity is often a, a positive thing, but there are good examples, I think, from North America where 
actually not reconnecting rivers is you know very important to stop the migration of movement of uh, Asian carp into certain lakes. So it's got to be done kind of with a, a kind of understanding of what the consequences are of opening areas, uh, new species to move. I think in the UK, I mean, the thing I mentioned is we've got a lot of very small barriers that are probably not really being used for anything. They are really good candidates to be removed at you know, quite low cost. I'd like to move very much on the previous question earlier about making a film and getting across. I think one of the, certainly one of the key challenges that we've got in terms of getting message across in terms of the value of church streams is being able to get that general public engagement and understanding about, we all understand why church streams are important. I think we've got the talent in front of us there to produce the right kind of film. I would just like to make sure that that point's not lost, please. Any more questions? David and I were wondering just how many migratory species are sort of logged from a chalk stream point of view. I've got the salmon obviously in the eels, but what's the probably to put on that question? In the UK? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, we've got very low species conditions generally. Um, I think it's anything that's tagged in the ICN um, database as being migratory. So there will be some species that where that information isn't known about how far they're migrating. In the UK, I think it'd be salmon, sea trout, uh, maybe some of the shad species as well, and the Lapidus species. I was wondering if the list could be, you know, the, the mullet revelation was was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Flounder, um, and and actually, not necessarily from your IUCN point of view, but from the point of view of making arguments about various migration and so on with chalk streams, it might be really interesting to put a really <coughs> comprehensive list of the fish species that actually depend on being able to move within and in and out of the chalk system. And I think that's a, a key point. We need kind of the information and, and Catherine showed with the, the salmon, you know, this requires a lot of effort to, you know, do the salmon assessment. And we've got, you know, 18,000 fish, fish species, the majority of which we won't have that level of detail that we have for the salmon. I think there's more research on salmon than most other species, but, you know, the, the vervet, for example, in the UK, I, I love the vervet, I did my PhD. <laughs> No one had published on the boat in the UK since 1970. So, you know, that was the last paper. So, you know, you've got 40 years with no one thinking. Okay, great. Well, thank you, everybody. I've got one question I'm not expecting to be answered now, but I want to make sure that we log it and think about it. And that is, why do we, it seems, as a, as a community for people who care passionately about wild fish, their habitats, we're here talking about the particular focus on chalk streams do collectively such a poor job in enhancing and promoting the conservation status of, 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 of our world compared to the, the world of birds or, or mammals. And that, that for me is, is something that drives me to try and break that down to get our voice heard in a much wider audience. Is it because we're too quiescent? Are we just bad at being activist? Just bad? communicating full stop. I'll leave it with you over lunch, but it's something I want to, to return to at the end when we have our final. Okay, go on. Go on. Are you all happy to wait for a five seconds for your it's, sandwich? It's, it's only five seconds. From the point of view, stand view of sharks and rays that seem to be more into, into people's thought is because we had, in that group, we had the book Jaws. And that is what brought it to the public. 
and the way that was used to eventually to lead to sharks and rays to start to be protected. You need something like that to draw the public's attention and then work from there. Stories need teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Owned by Everyone podcast, one in a series of eight recorded at the Conference on the Wonder, Plight and Future of Chalk Streams, held in Cambridge at the end of March 2023. Our conference wouldn't have been possible without generous funding from Pembroke College, Cambridge, the University of Cambridge's School of Arts and Humanities Impact Fund and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. So we want to thank them too. Now, go back to ownedbyeveryone.org and swim in the pool of water resources of all kinds that you'll find there.